0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. Our text is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This is our second lesson, focusing on the Ten Commandments. The list in Deuteronomy comes in 5, 7 through 21. Here are the six verses that come before that. This is 5, 1 through 6. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses to the second generation out of Egypt. He calls out here to that generation, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking to you today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. It's a call to obedience. This generation desperately needs to know who their God is, who they are, and what their mission is. That mission is to go take the land of Canaan. The sin of the Amorites has boiled over for 400 years. The time of their judgment has come. The time for Israel is now. But the mission is not only to enter the land and then live however they will, just as the people of that land have done for centuries. Israel has a moral mission. They are to be a kingdom of priests. They are to live out the will of God. They're to be a light for the surrounding peoples. They are to be a blessing to the nations. In bringing this challenge to this generation, Moses says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. That's an interesting declaration. God did make this covenant with their fathers and all of this generation less than 40 years old were not yet born. Moses isn't rewriting history. Moses is emphasizing to this generation that the covenant does not stop with the fathers. The covenant was not just for the fathers. The covenant applies to the generation that is alive right now. This is their history, their story, their present reality. They are the ones who must decide Do we own this covenant ourselves? Is this our covenant? Moses reminds them that God spoke on that mountain. The living God spoke to us. And Moses reminds them of the fear that people felt and that he served as their mediator. He mediated, but the words of the law are God's words. Our God is the God who speaks. Our God is God who reveals himself, who teaches us who he is, who we are, and how to live out the mission. The moral vision of the Ten Commandments continues on to those of us who are now under the New Covenant. We are the generation alive now, and Jesus, not Moses, has called us to love the Lord God by living in obedience to his commandments. So we're taking a closer look at the Ten Commandments. We started with Commandments 6-10 through in our previous lesson. We turn to Commandments 1 through 5 in this lesson. There's debate among various Jewish and Christian traditions on how to order the Ten Commandments. You know, which commandments are 1 through 10. The first potential difference comes from the Jewish Talmud, which takes Deuteronomy 5, 6 as commandment number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. While taking this as the first commandment has the advantage of emphasizing the importance of this verse, an understanding of ancient Near Eastern treaties indicates that verse 6 is better understood as a very brief covenant title and covenant prologue that precede the covenant stipulations. The title, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh Elohim, is followed by the short history or the short prologue, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 7 is written as an imperative in a form you would expect of the first covenant stipulation, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first actual command. Another difference between traditions occurs with the decision of whether or not to understand verses 8 through 10 as part of verse 7 or as two separate commandments. Following Augustine, the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther understood these verses to be one long command. You shall have no other gods before me includes then you shall not make for yourself an idol. Combining these two commandments into one is going to leave us with only nine commandments. That brings us to a third difference. The typical way to still have 10 commandments is to separate verse 21 into two different prohibitions against coveting. The ninth commandment becomes, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And the 10th commandment becomes, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. Stuff is my summary for house, field, servants, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. A major problem of separating coveting into two commandments comes when you look back at the wording of the same commandment in Exodus twenty seventeen, the version given at Mount Sinai, which does not start with coveting your neighbor's wife. It starts with coveting your neighbor's house, then wife, then possessions. This difference suggests that the prohibition really is against coveting. And the lists provide examples that can be ordered in different ways without changing the basic intent of the command. But if we don't divide coveting into two commandments, then we also can't group no other gods and no idols. So I'm going with the numbering system recommended by the Septuagint, the Jewish scholar Philo, and later by John Calvin. This is the list most Protestants are aware of, and I think this numbering system fits best the biblical text. The commands in summary form are this. One, have no other gods before me. Two, make no idols. Three, do not take God's name in vain. Four, keep the Sabbath. Five, honor your parents. Six, do not murder. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not bear false witness. Ten, do not covet. We covered the second five in our previous lesson. We are covering the first five in this lesson. And we're looking at these 10 commandments as a summary of the whole law or as a paradigm for the moral law of God. Jesus signed up the whole not with Ten Commandments, but with just two commandments you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. Uh, but these two commandments aren't original in Matthew. Jesus quoted from the Pentateuch, the greatest commandment to love your God comes in our very next chapter, right after the Ten Commandments, it's in Deuteronomy six five. And the command to love your neighbor comes from the Moral Holiness Code in Leviticus 19.18. These two commands sum up the whole of Torah. So they must also sum up the summary of Torah. These two commands sum up the Ten Commandments. And we see that fairly clearly. The first five commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with God. Love your God. How? Well, first by keeping these commandments. The last five commandments focus on our horizontal relationships with people. You'll love your neighbor. How? Well, by keeping these commandments. We also recognized in our previous lesson that the keeping of those commandments, the last five that we addressed, doesn't appear that difficult at first. You know, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying in a court of law. And if we ignore the last one, we're good. But when we recognize that Torah law works both at the level of civil law setting a low bar and also at the level of moral perfection setting a very high bar, then we are forced to consider the Ten Commandments more closely. We took our cue in that last lesson from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jesus is not at all anti-law. Towards the beginning of the sermon in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus declared, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Then towards the end of the sermon, in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus teaches us that the moral vision of the Mosaic covenant flows right into the moral vision of the new covenant. And Jesus takes us into a closer look at the commandments so that we can see with each commandment there is a moral continuum at work. It's like standing on a path, and you can choose to turn in one direction or the other, and you can move along that path towards one extreme, or you can move along towards another extreme. Physically taking someone's life is the negative extreme of the command, do not murder. But Jesus teaches us that as soon as we move down the path in that direction in our mind, as soon as we begin to hate or embrace contempt for the life of another person, we are responsible for having committed murder. The path is a continuum towards the extreme action. A continuum that starts in the mind and then it moves out to words and then out to actions and then can end in something very extreme like actual murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus focused on identifying the sinful direction of the path. But understanding the other teachings of Jesus, we recognize that he's not just calling us to not do bad stuff. He's calling us to turn our backs on sin and death and to head the other way, to head in the positive direction. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus at the end of the path in the good direction. At the extreme positive end of that path, we see this vision of a person who loves others so much that he would be willing to lay down his own life to protect or care for the life of another person. And that's the opposite of murder, and that's Jesus. That's exactly who Jesus is. The positive moral direction is also a continuum of protecting and giving life it's not just that extreme event but it's but it's through our thoughts and through our words and through our actions that we're engaged in this positive moral command to give life to others so in our previous lesson we considered how the last five commandments all operate as a continuum you know or as a path and we can choose to walk away from jesus or towards jesus those commandments give us a paradigm a moral vision for how we love our neighbor as ourself. This is what that looks like. This is how we fulfill the second great commandment. And that teaching of Jesus has set up our model for how to interpret all of the Ten Commandments. And so now we're ready to turn to the first five commandments and to consider our relationship with God. How do we fulfill the first great commandment? This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So standing on the path, and turning to look down to that far end we see a plethora of gods calling for our allegiance and worship offering us identity, power, pleasure and security but we're told you shall have no other gods before me let's think about what that means in original context no other gods before me in the ancient near east the standard world view adopted by every nation surrounding israel included a primary god as king with a pantheon of lesser gods surrounding that god. you know, Whatever his name, whether it was Amun-Ra or Asher or Marduk or Baal, the king of the gods sat on the throne, and the other gods stood before that king as the royal court. The wording of this first command forbids the setting up of any pantheon to go along with Yahweh. So it's not necessarily putting up other gods before God it means a complete rejection of Yahweh, but it means establishing this whole pantheon of gods that we can go to, this whole plethora of sources that we can seek to fulfill our needs. Yahweh may be king, but we've set up this court of gods surrounding him, that stand before him. The Bible gives us a, a truly unique and countercultural vision of worship. In Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses calls out, Hear, o Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Just one, not a plethora. And in Deuteronomy 4.35, speaking about God's might in delivering Israel from Egypt, Moses tells the Israelite, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. To make the point clear, Moses says again four verses later in 4.39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And Moses needed to make that clear. The oneness of God, the uniqueness of God is completely countercultural to the typical ancient worldview that assumes a plurality of gods. There are other spiritual beings, to be sure, demons and angels, but there are no other gods. There's only one God. This basic command has begun to run countercultural to much of modern or postmodern Western thought, which really has begun to embrace pluralism, that everybody can have their own god and now it's, it's not so much a belief objectively in a plethora of gods, but God is understood to be subjective. You know, we create the gods with our minds. Truth is subjective. Everybody has their own vision of God. All of those visions are right. So you worship whatever, you can set up a whole pantheon of, of spiritual beings, and, and nobody can say that anybody's wrong. But God is not a creation of the human mind. That's completely false. God is not subjective, God is real, and God is one, and there is no other. Standing on the path looking down towards all these gods who would gather around the one true creator God is lesser options. We may not bow down in worship or claim allegiance outright to some particular God, but this path too is a continuum. We can move down this path in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions in a variety of ways before actually coming to the point of open allegiance to another God. It starts in the mind with doubts and questions regarding the goodness of God. You know, is he really good? Does he really care? Is he really unique? Does Is this really the way for me to get what I want out of life, to get pleasure or to have security? Is God the only way? These questions and concerns pop into our minds quite naturally. Sometimes as just really good honest questions, Sometimes motivated by our sin nature, sometimes encouraged by Satan, sometimes coming at us from our culture, it can be hard to unpack where the questions come from, whether the source of the question is good or bad. What we do with those questions determines whether or not we are moving down the path towards other gods. Our orientation matters a lot. Do I have my eyes fixed on Jesus? You know, I'm doubting and questioning, but am I fixing my eyes on Jesus? Am I seeking the kingdom of God? Am I trying to find answers to my questions in him? Or am I beginning to walk away from God? Am am I accepting other cultural answers or other gods, other sources of power? When I begin to seek other sources for that which is meant to come only from God or primarily from God, then I begun down the road towards other gods. When I seek Pleasure outside of the good pleasure God has designed for me, then I'm seeking another God. When I seek to define my basic identity through relationship with another person or entity other than God, then I'm seeking another God. When I give adoration or worship somewhere else, I'm seeking another God. When I'm looking for somebody else to answer my prayers or to make me secure or to give me power, or to provide success, then I'm seeking other gods. And the best way to resist the temptation of our hearts away from God is to turn towards God. With with all our cares and our anxieties and our questions, we turn to face him, to pursue him. We can ask, what is the positive opposite? What's our goal? What are we aiming for as we turn up the path towards God? And in this, this case, with the first commandment, it is the greatest commandment. The positive opposite of seeking out other gods is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And it's not a standard we can reach. And we can go ahead and admit that right now. You are not going to love God with all your heart or with all your soul or with all your might. If, if you can achieve it for seconds or minutes, that's great. That's awesome. Um, it's, and I mean you're not going to achieve it here before heaven, but we pursue it and we grow in it. This is a vision we can reach towards. It's a good that we can run after. God wants all of who we are. That makes sense. He doesn't want lip service. He doesn't want us to play religion He doesn't want legalistic obedience. He wants us to pursue him with heart and with soul and with might. We worship and adore God with our thoughts, with our words, and our actions. We are pursuing this path. God and the good things he gives, that's what we seek to fill our souls. Why does God demand this primary place in our lives? Why is he so exclusive? Why is this the first and greatest moral commandment? Here are two thoughts. One, God is the greatest good. He himself is the definition of good. Pursuit of good is pursuit of God. The two cannot be separated. God cannot encourage us to give our primary allegiance elsewhere. That would not be good. That would be God encouraging us to turn away from good. God is unique in this. God is the one being in all creation who ought to call out for his own praise because he truly is the center of all good. If God is going to praise that which is most good, God actually must praise himself. He must care about his own glory. It's not right for me to seek my own glory. It is absolutely right for God to seek his own glory, and it's right for him to call all creation to recognize his glory and give him praise. A moral vision without God is an immoral vision. Two, the only way for me to truly live as the moral creature I was created to be is to do so in relationship with God. I cannot live out the moral vision of loving my neighbor if I am not living out the moral vision of loving my God. As a human, I've been created in the image of God to reflect the glory of his nature, I cannot do this separated from God. I was not made, even without having fallen into sin, I was created to be filled by my God and to walk with him and to live with him. And I don't mean that I can't do any good at all separated from God. All people are created in God's image and able in moments to do acts of compassion and justice and kindness. But to truly address the selfishness of my own heart and mind the pollution of my soul to truly understand what is just and loving and pure and good, to be able to speak truth in love, to be in a process of transformation, to become whole, to have power to act in love. For all of these things, I'm dependent on relationship with God. I can't be the moral being I've been created to be if I'm not in relationship with God. That it It cannot happen. I could summarize it with these three things. To grow in my understanding of God and of what is good, to be changed in my desires for good, and to have power to enact the good that I know I ought to do. All of these, understanding, transformation, and power, all of these require that I am in an ongoing relationship with my Creator. A moral vision without God is a skewed and impotent vision. It is good and right and necessary for God to call every one of us into a full-on relationship with him. We can only be who God created us to be as human beings by growing in our pursuit of him with all of our heart and soul and strength. This is life. This is what it is to be human, a pursuit of God and we do not first love him. God first loves us. We respond in love to him, and in that relationship, we're then enabled to truly love people. This command must stand first, that you have no other God but the one true God, and you will love him with all that you have. Let's move on to commandment number two, make no idols. This commandment's longer, so let's read the text from Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. We can see why this commandment has sometimes been counted as an aspect of the first commandment. Making an idol of some created thing, whether the sun or moon or eagle in heaven, whether bull or snake or human on earth, whether fish of any kind in the water, can be understood as a violation of the extreme negative of the first command to have no other gods. When you've actually made an idol in the shape of some created thing, you have certainly committed yourself to some other god. You've violated the first commandment. But it is also helpful for us to think about the difference between the two commands. The first command considers our allegiance to other gods. The second command considers the definition, even the creation, of false gods. During our study of the Pentateuch, we've recognized two types of idolatry. One type of idolatry involves a turning away from God to other sources of power. The goat demons in Leviticus 17 represented this type of idolatry. Chapter 4 here in Deuteronomy focuses on this type of idolatry. There's a repeated call for Israel to remember God who spoke at Mount Sinai and to resist the pull to go over to the gods of Canaan. Do not let society define for you or help you define sources of worship and power and identity and pleasure. Listen to the God who spoke to you. Seek your definition of life in him. Don't go after that kind of idolatry. The other type of idolatry was exemplified through the making of the golden calf. This is making an idol of Yahweh. So this isn't really a turning from Yahweh. This is a recreating Yahweh. And this happens when we create a physical form for God, like the calf. It also happens when we make a conceptual form of God for our minds. Like when we highlight specific aspects of God without mention of other aspects of God, whether we make God a God of justice without compassion or a God of mercy without wrath. Both are false conceptions of the God revealed in the Bible. When Jesus is conceived only as a lamb, never as a lion or the other way around, then we're beginning down the road of idolatry. When we form in our minds a conception of God that is not true to his nature as he has expressed it in his word. Considering this golden calf type of idolatry that would make an idol and call it Yahweh, what would the opposite positive action be for us? You know, when we turn our back on this kind of idolatry, what are we pursuing? I like what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Pursuing God with our heart, soul, and might requires that we seek the God who truly is, not the God we would create ourselves. To seek God in truth requires that we allow God to define himself for us, to reveal himself to us in his word, not primarily through our experience. We may experience God but we have to understand that experience through his word. This idea of allowing God to reveal himself comes out in the wording of the commandment. You may have heard his name from Exodus 34, 6-7. to You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And we're getting the idea of God's just wrath right beside his overwhelming loving kindness. We love God by rejecting other gods and by rejecting our own definition of who God is. We love God by seeking the truth about him according to how he has revealed himself, even when that revelation runs counter to our own tradition or our own conception of or our own desires. In the third commandment, we're told not to take God's name in vain. I used to think this simply meant, don't use God's name when you cuss. I don't think that's what this means, at least not in the way most people cuss. If someone says, God damn you, they're probably not seriously thinking about God or about you being damned by God. But that's where the phrase comes from. It is a curse, a prayer to God asking God to close the doors of heaven on you, that you would be eternally damned. God damn you. It's not cussing, it's cursing. It's calling a curse on you. Taking God's name in vain has to do with the use of God's name for a human being's own personal gain whether we are calling for curse on someone else or for blessing for ourselves, when we view God as a power source that we can manipulate, we are taking his name in vain. If we think that adding the name of Jesus to the end of a prayer in the right formulaic mix somehow compels God to act, then our prayer is the prayer of the occult. It's magic if we think we have the ability to cause God to act or harness the power of God or manipulate God, you know, if you just pray in a certain way or worship in a certain way or repeat things in a certain way or, or imagine things in a certain way, you just name it and claim it, then you're using God as a power source to get what you want. And that's magic. That's not prayer. Prayer is not a formula by which we control God. And it's easy to slip into as a Christian and sometimes I, I think there's just some honest, childlike prayer that might sound like that, That, but it's not really manipulative. I'm not talking about that. God's told us to pray for all things, and he's told us that when we pray in the name of Jesus, we will receive what we've asked for. But that's an idea that needs some time to unpack, and we don't have time to unpack all of that right now. What I will say is that praying in the name of Jesus does not mean using the right name as part of a formula. The name of Jesus is the character of Jesus. Remember the name of God in Exodus 34, 6 that we've talked about so often, and the name I am in Exodus 4, and the other various names of God we've encountered through the Pentateuch. Those names have been revealing to us who God is. His name reveals his character, reveals his justice, his compassion, that he is creator and provider, he is self-existent, he's the one willing to speak to man. Praying in the name of Jesus has to do, not with just using the name when we end the prayer, you know, I pray this in the name of Jesus, it has to do with praying according to who Jesus is, knowing the character of Jesus, and praying in line with the character and will of Jesus. Prayer is not fundamentally formulaic. That's one of the reasons prayer gets so boring. Prayer is fundamentally relational. When we pray, we ask. We do not demand. God is our Father who wants to hear every desire of our heart. But in the lifting up of those desires, things happen. When we come to God and lift up our desires, sometimes He changes our hearts. When we look to him, our desires have a way of readjusting. When we take our eyes off the storm of life and look at Jesus, sometimes we forget what we were going to request. Sometimes when we look at God, we don't receive relief, but we receive strength. We experience him walking with us through the suffering. And then at other times, he grants our requests directly. However God chooses to answer, Prayer is fundamentally relational and entering into conversation with God about our needs and our desires and our dreams and our struggles. In the relational communication that is prayer, we acknowledge that God is Father and King and Lord. Those are all authority relationships. We are under his authority. So whenever we request anything, we submit to the rightness and goodness of God. We trust him to make the call to grant or to deny any request. We trust him in that. He doesn't exist to answer our request. That's a genie. That's not God. We exist to be in relationship with him, and prayer is a means by which we enjoy that relationship. So when we turn our back on that kind of prayer or oath that is taking God's name in vain, you know, that is simply manipulation or formulaic prayer that expects sort of this magical response if I can just use the name right then I'm going to get what I want when we turn away from that what are we turning towards you know what's our vision for true prayer i like jesus prayer in the garden of gethsemane my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as i will but as you will. Or we could go with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. We make the request, but we submit that request fully to the will of God. The fourth and fifth commandments take on a different form than the other eight commandments. Instead of telling us what we should not do, both of these tell us what we should do. So we start with the positive side of the moral continuum, and then we have to try to imagine what would the opposite be. The positive fourth commandment is keep the Sabbath. That's a positive something that we're supposed to do. So if we're going in the right direction, we are keeping Sabbath. It's the longest commandment, so let's read it. Deuteronomy five twelve through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is, in the civil form, this is an ordering of Israelite society, and it's providing rest and care for laborers, and it's giving structure to their, their week and their months and their seasons and their years. Christians debate on whether this commandment still applies, and if it does, what does it mean? I'd need a whole lesson to get into that debate. I'll just indicate a couple of important factors. On the one hand, the Sabbath is connected to the Mosaic Covenant as a sign. That's in Exodus 31 and again in Exodus 35, when covenant's renewed after the sin of the golden calf. So it's important enough to say both times. The wording God uses in Exodus 31:17 is that the Sabbath is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. And that wording, that it's a sign and that it's with Israel and that it's forever forever, connects us back to Genesis 17 when God gave Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision. So as a covenant sign for the Mosaic covenant, it makes sense that we who are in the new covenant are not bound to this sign in the way it was practiced under the previous covenant. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and it was expressly commanded again under the Mosaic covenant. Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, but it is not expressly commanded again under the New Covenant. On the other hand, the idea of Sabbath goes all the way back past Mosaic Covenant, past Abrahamic Covenant, to the creation. And that does at least raise the question of the debate on whether or not this should be practiced through all covenants. Personally, I don't believe we're bound to practice Sabbath as commanded in Mosaic Law. I think the ceremonial and civil and pedagogical functions of Sabbath are fulfilled in Jesus. I do not see the Sabbath commandment repeated in the New Covenant as are other commandments. And we have to consider the Sabbath rest language in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which suggests that Jesus Christ has provided for us a new form of Sabbath rest. We still have Sabbath rest, but it's not the Sabbath day. Hebrews 4.10 tells us the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. So for understanding this commandment as part of our moral paradigm, we can focus on this idea of Sabbath rest as dependence on God. So I'm going to leave aside for the moment the, the question, kind of the civil ceremonial moral question of whether actually not working on a particular day is required. And instead, I'm going to focus on this idea that really comes out in in Hebrews that's behind the commandment, that there was this day that was commanded in order for Israel to express a spiritual state of trust and dependence. So whether or not the outward commands are still required of us as New Covenant believers, we can focus on the, the inward command of dependence and rest in God. For most of time, most of human society has worked in agriculture, and that was certainly true through the whole Old Testament period. To not work on Sunday during time of harvest truly required trusting God that rain or frost would not destroy those crops that are sitting out there waiting to be brought in. It's going to have to wait until after Sabbath day. God is saying, trust me with the fruit of your labor, do you really need to work on Sunday? He's also saying, make me a priority. Recognize that you are not in control and that you need time with me. Sabbath rest is displayed by giving regular priority to our relationship with God, being willing to take off from our struggles and our pursuits. Sabbath rest is also a call to inner peace that comes from trusting God with life. Jesus said, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking first God's kingdom doesn't mean busy, busy, busy for God all the time. We are called to stop, to rest, to sit at his feet, put our plans and strategies in his hands. I like how the New American Standard Bible translates Psalm 46.10 as a negative extreme for this command. Um, so opposite to keep Sabbath is this command to cease striving. You know, Just stop. Stop. Rest in God. Don't depend on your labor. Cease striving and know that I am God. The fifth command also stands out as a command to positively do something. Honor your parents. This commandment stands out for another reason. It doesn't seem to belong in this list of commandments to love God, but rather with the commandments to love people. I like keeping this commandment here as a transition between the commands to love God and the commands to love people because our relationship with our parents Is the first place that we have a chance to learn about both, to learn what it means to show love and respect for one in authority over us, and also to learn what it means to love and respect other people. You know, in the beginning of life, our parents are our God. You know, we look up to them and they know everything and they tell us everything and they take care of us. So we're beginning to learn what it is to live in this dependent authority relationship. The model's never perfect. Sometimes it's lacking. Sometimes it's terrible. Some people have to learn what it is to love their heavenly father out of a yearning for the love they never experienced from their earthly father. The model was corrupted with the fall of man. But the model still exists, and it's God's plan for us to honor that model, to honor the right authority that he's placed over us in our parents. The command is not given to the parents, but to the children. God establishes for us the importance of family, even broken family. God's moral vision for us as human beings involves giving honor to our parents. This is right and good. And the command is not to give honor to good parents or successful parents or even caring parents. The commandment is simply to honor your parents. This is good and right for you that you honor the parents God has given you. That does not mean that you validate or enable the brokenness or sin of your parents. At some point in life, we must take parents off the pedestal and recognize them as human beings created in the image of God who have tried or who have not tried. They're fallen just like the rest of us. Honor is also not equivalent with obedience. It is when you're a child. Obedience is part of the right relationship between parents and children because parents are, at that stage, rightly the authority over the children. I think you continue to obey as you transition to adulthood and are still dependent financially on your parents. Ideally, parents are helping you make the transition to adult responsibility, but regardless of how well they are doing, you obey as long as you are dependent on them for food and shelter, unless they are asking you to directly disobey the moral commands of God. And that would be a situation where you would rightly disobey. Otherwise, if you're living in their home, you obey their house, their rules, that's what honoring your parents looks like. When you get married or move out on your own as a dependent single person, you continue to honor, but are no longer under your parents' authority, so honor doesn't include obedience. This is a pattern God gave from the beginning. Genesis 2:24 states, "For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh." You know, a new family has begun. They have left father and mother, And now there's a new family with a new authority structure. To honor in this context of this new reality with a new family means to respect and to speak well of, to care for, but not necessarily to obey. That is unless you didn't leave father and mother but are still living under their roof as a new family, and then that gets messy. The opposite of the command to honor could be do not curse. You know, parental frustration brings out the temptation to curse our parents. When our parents fail us or hurt us or restrict us, we want to lash out or speak harshly. You know, love can turn to hate, but hate binds and hate corrodes. Proverbs twenty twenty teaches us, he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. Whatever your particular case may be, Honoring your parents is not a suggestion. It's a commandment from your heavenly father. It is part of his vision for you to continue to grow as a whole person. And it was the one commandment given with a promise. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. God's plan for healthy people in a healthy society begins in the home with a mother and a father who teach their children to obey the commandments, to love God with their heart and mind, to seek God as he is in spirit and in truth, to trust God in prayer, and to find rest in dependent relationship with God. God is calling us to abundant life. He's calling us to walk with him on the path, fixing our eyes on Jesus and pursuing him through a life of obedience to his commandments. Just as Jesus taught us in John 14:21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.